Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you. And sat opposite me at the nursery ground here at Law's Cricket Ground is Carl McDermott, the chief groundsman here at, well, for the MCC, but at Lords. Welcome to the show. This is really your back yard, isn't it? I mean, your, your house is over there. What an amazing place to call your home and your workplace as well. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You're right out my back door and uh, into the office is great. How long, well, you started here in, in 2018, of course, when taking over. I mean, your, your background in curating, let's go back to the start when you first were in a position to do this for a living. I mean, obviously your accent suggests you're not from here. You were doing it at Clontarf in Ireland, but that progression between there and here, it's quite a great story, isn't it? Yeah, so I think this is my 34th season in cricket, you know. I know I don't look that old, but uh, <laughs> I started off when I was 14, helping out the local cricket club, which is a volunteer groundsman, and it sort of escalated from there, really. Carl, we're going to talk to you as we go on today about how pitches work, you know, get the explainer, get the for dummies version to actually try to understand the thing that we have a theory that nobody who commentates cricket or watches cricket has any fucking idea what's actually happening with the pitch. (laughs) They just like to talk about what's happening with the pitch. So we're going to try to unlock that with you a bit. But, yeah, your story is an interesting one. I mean, coming into Lords, like being the chief groundsman at Lords, like does that give you a a bit of swagger in in the world of pitch curation? (laughs) You've got the big name on your resume. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know how much swagger it gives me, but uh, I certainly get plenty of grief from my friends about it. Um, but it's good, you know. Yeah, it's it opens doors for me. I can go and go to places and see Wimbledon and Wembley and and sort of catch up with other people who are my peers. So when when you first started out doing it, did you were you were you in sort of within the cricket world already? Like were you a kid playing cricket and so on, or were you doing more broader groundsman work and curation? And it just happened to be that that cricket was it for you by virtue of your circumstances? Yeah, I think I just fell into cricket by chance uh, as I started off as a summer job and then it sort of grew and grew and grew at, at Clunterf, um when I took over as groundsman but it was purely part-time then as well. I was doing sports in university and then I thought I wanted to be a groundsman so the opportunities came up. I travelled overseas in the winter, worked in South Africa and Australia and then the club took me on full-time uh, in Ireland. What are the pathways into that kind of work? Like all the people that you've worked with over the journey, what sort of different directions have they come at it from? Like you'd imagine some would be interested in horticulture, some would be interested in landscaping. Um, There'd be a whole lot of different ways that you could arrive at the same spot. Yeah, I think cricket's quite unique. People just tend to fall into it uh, or they're failed cricketers as well and this (laughs) is their best way into it. There is apprenticeships now. We've just taken on an apprentice and uh, but mostly have learned through experience and on the job training greenkeeping seems more 
structured with courses and things like that. So, but cricket seems to be trial and error a lot with the guys on the circuit now. So you've had one international ground before this one down at Hampshire, which was your home for a long time. I wouldn't say it was your apprenticeship to here. That would be unreasonable <laughs> to the job at the Rose Bowl, which is obviously a mighty one, making that an international ground. Can you recall or put yourself back in, in, in your shoes then when Hampshire was getting its chance for the first time to host international cricket at a relatively new ground? And all eyes kind of are on the 22 yards in the middle. You know, all the facilities could be great, grandstands and so on, but if the pitch is no good, then it's not going to remain an international ground. Did you kind of feel that pressure on the way in? I think you always feel that pressure, to be honest. You know, there's so much focus on a cricket pitch nowadays. Uh, when I joined Hampshire, it was a great place to be because we were just about to start that journey with our, our first test match coming up. They'd already hosted one day internationals successfully, but the square was still quite young and changing. Um, now, it might have coincided with me joining there, but things start, tend to settle <laughs> down. <laughs> but there was a lot of hard work that went in to get to the ground to where it is. And my previous head grounds were there, Nigel Gray, uh, taught me a lot whilst I was there. And, you know, he, he put blood, sweat and tears into that ground. That made it what it is. And then you come here uh, up to London where the bloke who did it before you, Mick Hunt, did it for, well, 49 years and was, like a lot of the Australian groundsmen, I reckon, or curators as we call it there. I, I love that distinction, by the way. In Australia, it's more like a, an artistic pursuit. You're a curator, whereas England, you're a groundsman. But I digress. That you, were, you were replacing someone that had such a, a big presence in the game here with the MCC and suddenly all eyes on you. Mick was always someone that I think we all looked up to when we were younger and it was the pinnacle really, Lords and uh, Mick was great in the month, we spent a month together, uh, he was winding down and, and I was winding up, you know, trying to badger him with a million questions a day but I soon realised that I'd, if I got one bit of information out of a week I was doing pretty well. <laughs> uh, but listen, he was a great um, ambassador for cricket groundsmanship and one that name that will go on forever. 2019 the World Cup final I'm, I'm interested in how that day was for you I suppose because at, at the halfway mark you know New Zealand have scrapped to 241 and it, it's been pretty tricky to score on that pitch and people are grumbling about it being a, a boring one day international and then 50 overs later or 52 overs later it's become the greatest game of all time according to various people did you what, what was your experience like seeing it pan out that day so when I was chatting to Owen Morgan the day before you know it was a bat bat first pitch he was he was going to bat first uh, when we woke up the morning of the game there was a bit of rain around the covers came off and there was a good tinge of green in it uh, which didn't disappear uh, the whole day was one of hope for me I think and I think I sort of <laughs> one or two balls away from hero or zero really at some point <laughs> being, the, being the person whose fault it was that England didn't win the World Cup um, but there was a yeah, there's a sense of relief when England got over the line, for sure. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, you go through an entire tournament, there were, what, half a dozen or so games played at Lords throughout. That uh, That's a complex exercise, isn't it? I mean, I know you have to deal with that week in, week out with so many games played here on the main square, but a World Cup, when you're trying to engineer it, that your best pitch will be the one for the final. And the thing for me, it was obviously my first season at Lords as well, and it's not easy to go from ground to ground. You need to learn... You know, the slope here, for example, the, the pitches are slightly different. Um, so I was still sort of being maybe safe in, in my first year. So I, I would do some things differently now, for sure, about the World Cup final. But then, you know, if it's 350 plays 200, is that a bit boring as well? Yes. Well, that, that was certainly the consensus at the time that it might have been a, a low-scoring thriller, but a thriller it was and a game that people will 
sort of remember forever. And, and just on that uh, that point about how you work through the square through the summer, I know you've got pitches all the way across here at Lords in, in the modern setup. But I mean, you had a test match here nine days after between England and Ireland, which of course carries its own respect and mystique and so on. And an Ashes test match a, a month after that. I mean, talk about under the pump in year one. I think, but Lords is like that. You know, there's always a big game every other week, so you don't really get a chance to be on a downer. You're always sort of working towards the next game. It was definitely a challenge, and two test matches in a year, and test matches here carry more weight. Then there just seems to be more buzz and more, you know, pressure and people more always looking at you, and opinions I think as well. So you're always conscious you got to get things right. You're talking about learning how a ground works, um, how to how to react differently to a different ground and so on. Is the whole thing, the whole job, is can it be simple? Is it more simple than people think or is it something where it can be as complicated as, as you want it to be? Like the more detail you go into, the more the more different little facets of knowledge that you can find that you might end up going deeper and deeper into. Yeah, for sure. I think experience is a big thing. Every ground is different. The atmosphere is different. Um, your machinery is different. Your resources could be different. Um, I don't think it's... There's, there's no direct recipe for a pitch if there was i'd be probably find a good one and stick to it all the time <laughs> but you need you know a bit of experience and trial and error and then the odd bit of luck along the way i mean this is such a beautiful ground to be the the head groundsman at of course because it's only for cricket and you have months in, in the off season to, to do what you need to do to improve the ground more generally but what makes lords different to other grounds that you've worked at you said before that it can be the slope can play a role in your curation but how does that interact with what you're doing and, and what other factors are there here i never thought about the slope until i started working here and then we started trying to water pitches and naturally all the water runs down the <laughs> slope so it takes you longer to get water and it's, it's harder to get water into the square right moisture is key i know we all want dry pitches but you do need moisture to give you that pace and carry but it's a very fine line on, on what, what's too much and too little. But it's unique. It was a quick learning curve for me. You, know, you, didn't, you don't have much time to, to rest here, so you're always working towards the next pitch. So this, this might sound like a stupid question in some ways. It is, maybe in, in some ways it's not. But everyone who watches cricket sees pitches, talks about pitches, but they don't necessarily know what they're talking about like I think a lot of people just repeat what they hear from others and there's an accepted wisdom even if you don't know what's going on if we go right back to the basics you know somebody's walking down the riverbank a couple of hundred years ago and picking a spot to to build a cricket ground start from there how does just say a paddock just a just a bunch of grass somewhere how does that first turn into a cricket oval what characteristics does it need to have for it to work as a piece of ground um, quite difficult to turn a paddock into a cricket pitch, but many cricket clubs have done it around, around the world. You need, um, you need a good clay base, good soil base, um, something that you'll be able to roll out, you can water and, and you can manage. Uh, we use a particular type of grass that's on a cricket square. It's a rye grass, 100%, so that's hard wearing. Uh, you can cut it short and, and it'll survive. You need the machinery, I think, as well. But there's a lot of things that go into it, you know. To build a cricket pitch on its own, you know, the, pit, the square here is 12 inches deep with, with a particular soil called loam. So it's not like turning a paddock into, into a cricket pitch overnight. You know, if we relayed a pitch tomorrow, it would be three years before we could use it. So there's a lot of work that goes into it. 
Right, so when, when we had the, the issues at Melbourne a few years ago and they, they said that this is not a one-year process, you can't go from having a, a surface there, which was a drop-in pitch, but had the what, well, what was described as us as the old technology, and now it's a great pitch, but they've put a lot of work into the, the stuff well beneath the surface, probably 12 inches beneath the surface, what, what you're describing, that if something's not right, it, it can take a long time to, to make it good. Yeah, and I think people throw around the words relay pitches and things like that, but, you know, it's a huge decision to do that. You know, if, if a venue is to do that and you can't use a pitch for three years, for mm, example, you've mm. got to give up something to, uh, to be able to facilitate that. So what's the difference then between, say, the wicket square and the rest of the outfield? Oh, chalk and cheese. So the outfield here was relayed 21 years ago, I think, when they had mass- the old outfield was London clay that sat wet all the time. And they used to cover it, If well, you guys probably aren't old enough to remember that, but they used to cover the whole outfield Sri Lanka style. Yeah. Um, but now they, they relayed it, so it's basically built like a golf green. So you've probably got 800 millimetres, just shy of a metre of just pure sand, So which the water drains through magnificently here, that people talk about regularly. But that cost a million pounds. 21 years ago so wow. imagine what the cost is nowadays I've been here during the, the, the off season before when you've put work in well and your forebear Mick, Mick Hunt as well have effectively had the, the outfield dug up does it kind of um, make you shed a tear inside all the work that goes into making this grass so pristine that it gets to October and they go to work turning it over for the next season yeah absolutely uh, renovation period is really crucial in cricket that's when we get all the, the hard work done you know you've seen us tear the living daylights mm. out of it in October. Cricket's a strange game really. We, we spend six months trying to grow the grass in the winter and then the rest six months beating the living daylights out of it with a <laughs> three-ton roller. And so then what do you need to get the grass to do and, and the difference between outfield grass and grass on the wicket square? What, what behaviour are you trying to encourage from it? Yeah, well, as I say, the, well, the outfield grass is, is different mix to, to the main square here. So we have a fescue in there which is like a golf green top grass. We do treat them differently. Basically on a cricket square, we want a good clean sward of grass that we're continually treating and cutting and verticutting and to try and make sure that uh, there's no sort of thatch levels, which is like a spongy top that you might feel in your garden. And then the outfield, we just need to make sure that A, it looks good all the time and B, continually tickle it and treat it nicely so it keeps looking pretty for 12 months. I remember when uh, the, the, well, we, we touched on it at the top but you, you live here and when lockdown kicked in in early 2020 you were the sole inhabitant of the Lord's Cricket Ground which is kind of a I guess every cricket nuts dream come true that it was your personal playground but at the time there was a report that or you must have said to a journalist that it took you two days to mow the thing on your own when it was normally two hours to mow it with your team yeah. uh, your, your memories of, of that very unusual time when the ground was effectively out of action uh, strange you know everybody thought we were going to be playing cricket in a week or two and that week just kept rolling and rolling and rolling and at some point it felt a bit lonely you just felt like a grass cutter at times just going up and down listen the weather was great um, you go in early and you'd be finished just after lunch time and uh, it was good when cricket came round again um, but it was just a strange time, but listen, any time you walk out there, you get a massive buzz here. Mm. Uh, even now, this is my fifth season, the weekend mornings are my favourite time when there's no one around and going early and you, the sun rises behind you from over the Edward stand and just shines on the pavilion. And I think if I ever start losing that, that buzz and that sense of, 
I don't know, what, a sense of achievement that I'm, I'm in the role I am now, that mm. uh, it's time to move on. That's lovely. Yeah, and just to drill down on that cutting the grass during the pandemic, that sounds like a weird thing to go back to, but why did you keep cutting it? Like, why couldn't the grass, knowing that it was going to be multiple months where no one could get in the ground, let alone play on the ground. I think we got back in September, I reckon. Yeah. We played some games here in the blast, but it was obviously going to be months and months from a, a curation perspective. Why did you need to keep the grass in good nick through that stretch of time? I'll, listen, the more, generally, the more you cut it, the healthier the grass is going to be. You know, if we'd let it grow to a paddock, for example, we the job to get it back to a playable condition would, right. have, been, would have been quite difficult. We would have got it, we would have done that. But um, I probably, at some point, I did bite off a bit more than I could chew at the time. We, we, I verticalled the outfield, which means sort of cleaning it out. And I put on Twitter this massive pile of grass. And uh, I just dumped it in the Allen gap in between the grandstands. Uh, sorry, pavilion and Allen. And mm. uh, I think Matthew Hogger commented on Twitter, why did you just dump that grass there? <laughs> I was the only man. There's nowhere else to dump it. <laughs> um, but maintenance was key. We always wanted to be two weeks ready for to a cricket match so that was always that was always the aim were there moments when you were here where it must have felt pretty eerie right like uh, acknowledging that everyone had their own experience and this was a privileged one for you having this at your disposal but like a ground that's usually packed to the gills so many days per year that it's at full capacity and uh, so many days when it's just buzzing even like days when there's no matches on I'm here a lot as you know and it just has that vibe about it with nobody here suddenly yeah did it did it have sort of an eerie feel about it too it was definitely quiet I know we're in the middle of London, but the place is quite quiet at night time anyway. Even with traffic going by, it's it's a low hum. But during lockdown, obviously, there, there was nothing. One of the highlights, uh, one of the posh apartment blocks over the tavern stand, somebody was walking on the balcony every day and we used to wave at each other from 300 <laughs> metres away. And that was probably one of the highlights of the day at the time. But we, we had newborns at the same time through that stretch. And I, I mean, I have the experience through lockdown of, you know, pram, same walk, same walk, same walk. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit uh, it's, it's a little bit PTSD when we do it now. Um, you, very different. Your walk was, I suppose, um, pram out uh, on the, well, if not on the field of play, but round the ground all day long. Yeah, it was great. We're very lucky that we had the space, but... Uh, yeah, she was six six months old or so, and we could just take her out and walk around, and we had the space, and it was nice bonding time, actually. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Okay, so pitch question. If you take a cricket ball and just pelt it into your back lawn, it doesn't really bounce. Why does a cricket ball bounce just on dirt? Like, why is a why is a proper bowler able to get such elevation and carry off dirt, not off a synthetic surface? So we spend about two weeks preparing a cricket pitch. You know, for the for a test match, between ten and fourteen days, and you know we water it and then we start rolling it to to compact the soil and try and make it as hard as possible. But the aim is to get it hard enough with enough moisture in it that it won't crack up, and that relation between that and the hardness and the moisture will give you the bounce. The top two inches is probably dry, and then underneath that we'll have a level of moisture that, that helps that. If it was really dry, like an India-style pitch where the balls don't bounce that much, that would happen then. So it's like, a, it's like making a cake, almost. It is, like yeah. It's, it's a real slow burner. Um, we, you know, I caress and look after it for, for the next 10 days. You know, The Ireland test is a week away. 
and we're sort of well into preparation on that. But I do look after it like it's one of my own children. It, it, you say that the test with Ireland's a week away. I often think about this with you, especially because your role's more complicated with so many days of cricket here per year. But you've got them running all over the pitch right now, right? There's a blast game here this evening. There's a, a Charlotte Edwards Cup being played as we conduct this interview right now. They will be traipsing all over your precious test match pitch a week away from it needing to be used. I mean, how do you... I suppose you can't safeguard against that, can you? It just, it's, it's, a, it's a risk of this particular venue. Yeah, it is. So today we have a mat on the Test Match pitch, but we didn't two weeks ago when they were playing Championship cricket and, and running all over it. And for whatever reason, people always tend to stand on, on yeah, the Ashes pitch. Always, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we did, in, ni- in 19, we had a corporate day and somebody put a knee through one of the Test Match pitches. Oh. Uh, there was, I knew what had happened oh. to the sideline. I could see exactly where they were. But luckily, we just sort of patched and repaired it. And you need a bit of luck to make sure that's not in the right or wrong place, as the case may be. As you get older and wiser, less things bother you, I think. <laughs> and there's not much you can really can control. I, I know you've got the two test pitches these days, but can you just answer a stupid question? I know Jeff said earlier, maybe this isn't stupid, but watching on telly when you're watching the Lord's Test or doing a game on commentary here, there's the, almost the circular bit or semicircles at both ends. What are they all about? Are the fairy rings you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's only a thing I detect when I'm doing a test match here, not, not a not a first-class game. Yeah, so uh, somebody said to me, I think it was my boss, Jamie Cox, said to me the other day, oh, the fairy rings aren't here, and the next day they, they popped up. All oh, right. So uh, they're a fungus that's in the square. Um, there's no chemicals these days to, to get rid of them, but we try and treat it as well as we can. So that fungus which is non-harmful. Uh, it could be six, eight, ten inches deep, so you'd have to dig up a whole pitch literally to get rid of it. Really? So we try and feed them out and hide them. And the reason you don't see them early in the season is there's not as much warmth. So warmth and moisture is, brings them out. So I think they'll be showing their ugly heads come the Irish <laughs> test and definitely probably for the ashes, unfortunately. Huh. So what do you do with the ground over winter? What's the process? So once the season finishes, you know, the tractors come in with some pretty heavy-duty equipment to sort of rake and scarify and, and skim the top off the square and pull all the fluff and bad grass out of the outfield. That process probably takes about two weeks with the weather on your side. So we'd end up then reseeding everything, putting fresh soil on top of the square, reseeding the outfield and putting about 30 or 40 tonnes of sand over the outfield as well. And then we pray for some good weather and we see the grass popping up in about seven to ten days after that. And then when you know that's all done, uh, it's feed up time really and, and you try and take a holiday. London's pretty warm, so we're cutting grass more or less all year round. So we're busy up to Christmas and then it gets colder in January, February where you know the guys are doing their indoor jobs and machinery maintenance, painting stumps and all the fun jobs. How different would it be if you were in a country with warmer weather, if you're doing that in South Africa or in Australia or so on? So uh, when I worked in South Africa and Australia, you know, cricket, I'm not going to say is easy, but it was easier. You know, we didn't have to worry about the weather. Uh, well, when I say the weather, it was the rain. But it's... Um, uh, if I was working at the MCG, I'd have to work 12 months a year, though, wouldn't I? You know, with, with, 
winter sports and AFL and things like that. With the drop-ins, it's a, a very different job in Australia now than what it would have been if you were working there for a cricket ground that's being used for, for Australian rules football. It used to just be that the, the middle of the MCG would become a bog for, for months of the year, and that was part of its charm, to be honest, and uh, there's a different kind of uh, standard required of Aussie rules these days. The sort of pitch politics at a global level is quite, quite, um, uh, quite hot-button issue at the moment. Like, let's say over here when there's the perception that green tops have been rolled out or whatever. Like, we'll put that to one side. Just wanted to ask about the India question earlier in the year. You would have been watching the India-Australia Test Series when Jeff and I were over there um, commentating. And there was so much emphasis on intervention from above from, in that case, the BCCI telling them what to do with their surfaces and so on. I mean, what did you make of all that as the guy at Lord's? Like, I don't imagine you have someone up here at ECB Towers tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, Carl, mate, can we have a flooding next week or can we have a, a, a green seamer next week? I mean, you're, you're allowed to have uh, autonomy in your job given the ground we're at. Here, we always like produce the best pos pitch possible. When we have a test match, we do consult with the ECB like all the other venues would and they might have a request. They're always keen to help out the home team, but there is a line that people don't want to cross. I think it's pretty obvious if India are coming to the UK, we don't want to try. In terms of BCCI, I have no idea what their structure is. I don't sure. know who pays their grand staff. I just meant more along yeah. the lines of like, that it's interesting you're even, even making that concession that, that there is a, a dialogue between the ECB about what would exacerbate home conditions for England, which is of course fine, but um, that, that's going on behind the scenes before you start setting up like you would be for next week with Ireland. Oh yeah, like, so we met with Rob Key recently, you know, and I'll chat with Brendan when he turns up here next week. You know, the pitch will be well on its way. It just depends how we finish it off, really. I think Ben Stokes was pretty vocal in the press recently about fast pitches <laughs> for the Ashes. Uh, we do live in the UK, so that might be a challenge. How much control do you have over that, do you think, in your job and your colleagues that you work with on, on the surface? Like, we're a week out from the island test. If you said now, seven days out or even two or three days out, look, we really want to emphasise one particular characteristic, be it flat or be it green. Do you, do you have control of that quite deep into the pitch-making process? Oh. 100%. You know, it's how we finish off the pitch is how it dictates it's going to play. And by I mean finishing off, how much grass we leave on, the length, the density, how dry the pitch ends up getting. So once you, if you have the weather on your sides, you know, you can tip the pitch one way or the other as much as you want. You've always got to be wary of the weather over here because, you know, you don't want pitches drying out too quickly. I know it's bizarre to say that after the start of the season we've had. Yeah. The forecast is pretty strong and good over the next few weeks, so uh, it's a different type of management. So a, a dry pitch in England is going to play very differently to a dry pitch in India. Why does an Indian pitch turn in the way that it does? Not that all of them do, but why do they? Why can they take turn in such a different way? So they use a different soil, for sure. They, they, they use like a red clay, I think. I think does one of the venues have two different types? Yeah, of black and grey. Uh, sorry, uh, red and red and red. red and black. Jeff was red and black red when they were black, choosing yeah. between. That yeah, I think that. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they have totally different characteristics to what we the kind of clay we have over in in the UK. That have be much higher clay content than we do. Our clay here is about twenty eight percent. They could you know, Australia's up in the eighties and nineties percent. Right. Uh, but they've got the the environment to manage that. The heat, you know, it wouldn't work over here. We wouldn't be able to dry them out. But I had the, I've never been to India. I'd, I'd really like to go over and uh, see what the pitches are all about. Oh, you'd be a kid in a toy shop uh, on, a, <laughs> on, a, on one of those services with the, on the tools, I, I'm sure. Why is it then, with all of the different climactic differences, and you said then the clay content in Australia, how it's different to here in India again, that when you're watching T20 cricket, 
on the telly every night that every pitch can kind of feel the same. Like, what is it about short-form cricket that enables all those other factors to kind of go out the window in deference to a pitch that will probably enable high scoring? Well, firstly in the UK, I think most, most pitches across most venues are very similar. We use mostly similar soils. One-day pitches in the UK have been pretty good for a number of years now, really. It's interesting that if you... If you have a pitch with a bit of green on it on a one-day pitch, it doesn't seem to bother the players as much because the ball skips onto the back <laughs> quite nicely. But whereas if it's a four-day game or a test match, it's a whole different scenario. The white ball is different as well, isn't it? Uh, two white balls and 50 overs cricket as well, so you get nice hard balls come onto the bat. And so if it's a, a flat pitch in a test match, like, say, that that fourth test between India and Australia where there's nothing in it for bowlers. It's, it's relatively easy to sit in there for a long time. What's actually happened to that pitch? Like physically, what is it about that pitch that makes it easy to play on? Well, it's obviously got the weather is probably, it's got drier, you know, it's lost probably the majority of its moisture. You know, some venues do spin more than ore. You think you find that in the UK as well. We don't get much spin here at Lords. Other venues do like, like Manchester which is further north and not as hot as down here. Um, so it, it's every venue is unique, and with that environment and the climate around, it, there's, no, there's no one rule for all, really. When, when it's at its most taxing, you know, when there's a lot going on, how many pitches might you be preparing concurrently, acknowledging that that includes, like, I think there's the corporate day here in the middle of July again this year, isn't there? A couple of those and all of the different... I mean, there was the school game here a couple of weeks ago with Eaton and Harrow and all the different conversations around that to one side the fact that it has to be of a certain standard like how many will you have on the go at, at peak season there'll always be two on the go i think uh, august well last year we had a test match during the 100 as well so that was we had four on the go at one point so with the final coming up as well so generally two sometimes you're thinking about the third just as it's coming towards the end look we're lucky we don't have nets our net pitches on out in our square you know, whereas the oval for example Chelmsford, all these guys have. Oh, yeah. That nets. must be a complete nightmare, having to roll out, because, I mean, I know you look after the nursery as well, but having to roll out sort of international quality nets on your ground. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard work. You have to cover everything as well, don't you? So yeah. here with us, it's quite nice with the, with the slope, for example, that we don't you know, need to cover everything when it rains. We just cover the top of the square to make sure it doesn't run down. But if we had nets out there, for example, we'd, we'd cover the square for the majority of the season. Do you laugh whenever we're on commentary and we might say, it feels like, Jeff. I don't know about you, but every ground seems to gee, it drains good here. I don't know of a ground in world cricket that it drains poorly at, right? You must laugh thinking that, well, it's not by chance, is it? It's by choice that the work and the technology has been put in to, to help these grounds have great drainage. Just on that, though, what does that actually mean? What's been done here that means the ground does drain more quickly here than it would on a a paddock that's been turned into a club ground that Jeff or I might play on. So, as I said before, we've you know we got that loads of sand in it. Um, so it obviously it runs straight through the sand into a very very good drainage system underneath. So we tested it recently, and it's a bit of a boring start really. But some areas of the ground were draining between two and three hundred millimeters an hour. So that's a lot of rain before you know we're washed out. Right. And last year we had a thunderstorm and. The bottom of the ground was up to my just below my shin, or below <laughs> my knee, water. And the next day we could have played cricket. <laughs> so I think you get what you pay for, money. You got to maintain things. But um, yeah, it's pr- I didn't believe how good the outfield was until I till I came here, and everybody kept telling me the guys that work here, yeah, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And and I think I've I've seen that now multiple times. It's one less headache. There's no doubt about that.
What's the process? Walk me through the timeline and the process to get a pitch, one strip ready for action from the beginning to, to the first ball. So we'll plan where all the pitches are going to be, what match is going to be on what pitch in probably December, January time. Here we treat every pitch the same, so we don't prepare any pitch for a particular game any, any differently. So your Oxford Cambridge, Eaton Harrows, Village Cup final, we get the same treatment as a test match. And wow. uh, I think we just have that standard. My team have that standard that, you know, someone in the Village Cup could step out here for their first time and maybe only time in their life. So we want to make sure that experience is as good as when Jimmy steps out here for, I don't know how many test matches he's played. So, But it's about... You know, preparation time is says 14, 10 to 14 days. We would sort of cut it, clean it out, rake the sort of dead grass out of out of it. Uh, plenty of water, as much water as we can get into it, to down to about three or four inches. I'm a bit old school. I just sort of stick a pin into the ground, and I can see how soft it is. And then we start the rolling process, which, in total, over a course of preparation, it could be between 10 and 11 hours rolling over the pitch. So give or take an hour a day here and there. We generally gradually take the grass height down as we get closer to the game. And then two or three days out, we'd sort of be near enough to where we want to be with, with just a final bit of finishing off. So you and your colleagues on the roller, I mean, it's still a big part of the job is being up and down for hour after hour, making sure that it gets the, you know, gets the, the love it requires. Yeah, and timing is all key in that as well. And I think that's, it's not just simple as saying, go out and sit on the roller you know you need to roll at the right time make sure it's not too wet make sure it's not too dry so as we get close to the end of the preparation you know less is more really so you make mistakes over the years and you learn from those mistakes and then uh, you pick up good techniques along the way and so when you hear commentary talking about the pitch because obviously you have to fill a lot of time in cricket commentary and it's always it's all oh well, this one oh, it's a bit tacky it's a bit too paced it's a bit this it's a bit that do you do you think this is absolute bullshit? Do you, or do you ever think that... Are there some people who know what they're talking about? Some people know what they're talking about. Uh, listen, I, I get that they've got to fill time and probably the only sport in the world where the pitch is the most talked about thing, thing on commentary. You take it on the chin. You know, when I was young, I, that would affect me, any criticism. But now I think, you know, if you're... I'm honest enough with myself to know if they're talking rubbish or not but you know I'm not shy in sending Adam a direct message when he's talking rubbish on the Middlesex game <laughs> <laughs> we, we, yeah we, we try we try to stay pretty um, civilised when we're talking about pitches in in this particular ground for the reasons that we know how much work that goes goes into them but you're right like on commentary you, you've got hours to fill and you do just get a sense of what a surface is doing I was doing a, a test in Brisbane late last year when it was over in two days and it very quickly divided opinion on well is this fine or is this kind of not fine was it was it indeed dangerous and I'm not without commenting on, on that specifically, but like suddenly the curator, as they're called in Australia, come under a lot of scrutiny. I suppose that that will have been part of your lived experience as well when a, when a pitch doesn't go as well as you would have liked or a test ends early. I remember the India-England test here in 2018 ended in, in three days and it felt like it gave heaps of assistance to the seamers, albeit England had a huge first innings. But nevertheless, that the, um, the, uh, the impression in India was that it was set up to be one that was going to go from the get-go and, and so on. I mean, sure, you can take it on the chin, but you know, you are suddenly in the firing line. Yeah, and we're all, you know, we're human beings. You know, we do take it. Groundsmen are very, very proud people in all sports. And, you know, we put 
our life and soul into that bit of grass out there every yeah. week. And if when someone crit- critics you or critiques your work, that doesn't really have any background in it. You know, you don't mind taking a bit of grief from some of your peers, but when it's people on TV, the problem is at times it snowballs so quickly. You know, one comment from a commentator can all of a sudden be in the papers. And it's how you manage that personally, you know, dictates how you're going to go forward in, in the role. But, you know, we talk about mental health a lot nowadays. And I think the more you, you know, get knocked back and, you know, our kids going to come in and want to do this job if you're constantly getting criticised in the press. I totally appreciate it's part of the job. Um, and you've know, got to be pretty strong to take it. But sometimes... You know, like everything in the world, things go a bit too far. A bit like being an umpire, isn't it? We talk about recruiting umpires and the responsibility of us as commentators being measured about our criticism and, and basing it in, in fact, it kind of almost goes full circle to where we started, Jeff, how we said they're groundsmen in England and they're curators in Australia and there's this artistic element to it. There will maybe, you know, artists feel that way too, don't they, when, when they produce a piece of work, if they're critiqued in a way that it feels fair, they, they can have that affect their future work. I mean, it does feel like there's that, that is out there your, yeah. your blank canvas yeah, each week, isn't it? Yeah, I know, I know in Australia, they a lot of the guys go out and speak before a test match, don't they? Which in they front do. of <laughs> in a round table of press, I know that's pretty we, brave. We, we, Adelaide every year, isn't it, Jeff? We do a, a full-on press conference with Damien Huff each year before because day-night test, everyone's fascinated by. And now at Perth, they've been bringing the, the groundsman, the, the curator, up to the press conference table before each test day before because that genuinely fills newspapers at home. That's a um, different level of uh, scrutiny altogether. Oh, every every season we're talking about, you know, especially about something in Perth. Is it going to be like the old Wacker pitch, blah, blah, blah? Like, are you plugged into that community? Is there a kind of collegiality around the world with other curators in, in other countries? Um, so, w- within the UK, firstly, we, we've got a WhatsApp group with all the 18 first-class groundsmen, which is, which is very active, uh, multiple messages daily, mo- mostly moaning. I have a relationship with some guys with Damien at Adelaide, for example. One of my guys has been over there, and I've had his guys over here. We've got three Australians here at the moment, uh, one from Adelaide, Tasmania, and Melbourne. So oh, they're cool. here for the summer. So we always have that contact between Australia and ourselves, which is good. And it's really interesting for me because I can, you know, sort of badger them for some stuff as well. Hey, Carla, I'm mindful we've had 40 minutes of your time on a work day. Let you get back out to the middle of the ground ahead of the last game later tonight. But it's been fascinating talking to you about your craft. Um, we love your work and uh, it's been great to, to learn more about the, the art of pitch curation and, and the pressure that goes hand in hand with that. Thanks for joining us. No, you're more than welcome. Thank you very much. So you know what I meant here. I had to go.